I would ask that you take up your Bibles and that you would turn to our text this morning as we continue our study in the Gospel of Mark. And then you would turn to Mark chapter 4 as we'll be looking at verses 26 through 29 this morning. Mark chapter 4, verses 26 through 29. Brothers and sisters, hear with me then the reading of God's Word. And He said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day. And the seed sprouts and grows He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once He puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Thus far is a reading of God's Word. Now, brothers and sisters, usually... When we get into a a debate or a discussion upon the the sovereignty of God, there are a few obvious texts that we turn to, don't we? One such text might be from the the Gospel of John. John chapter 6. Where Jesus is talking to the Jews and they're not believing Him. They say, give us a sign. And I'm sure all of you can quote verse 44 by heart, he says, For no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Or we might turn to another text like Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, where Paul says to the church at Ephesus, In him that is in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And then one last common or classic argument that we might make comes from Romans chapter 9, isn't it? Where Paul says that the Word of God has not failed just because all all of Israel is not saved. Because he points out that not all of Israel are truly children of Abraham, but only those who are children of promise. And he demonstrates that in saying, well, Isaac, He had two sons, right? There was Jacob and there was Esau. And one of them, Jacob, was a child of promise. And one of them, Esau, was a child of the flesh. And so the question arises, well, how did that come about? Was it the the choice of the children? Or was it God foreseeing the choice of the children and basing His decision upon that? Well, no. Paul tells us concerning these two boys in verse 11, though they were not yet born and had done nothing good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of Him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Paul tells us, The Word of God has not failed because God saves everyone He intends to save. And He does so as He determines to based on His own sovereign will. 
Not because of anything that the creature has done. Not because of who your father or your grandfather is. Not because of what nation you belong to. Or not because of anything the creature himself can say, will, or do. Now I understand, and I think we all understand, the apprehension and the struggle that the other side has with that, don't we? Because I think people want to feel, and I think naturally people feel, that individuals ought to have complete and total freedom to make such a choice. People would rather believe that the reason why one believes and one doesn't, why one is in the kingdom of God and one doesn't, squarely resides in the choice of the individual. One just chose rightly and one chose incorrectly. They rather think that than ever for a moment consider the fact that that choice rests entirely on the divine sovereignty of God. Right? They don't want to think that because they think it makes God look unfair or it makes Him look unjust. But the fact of the matter is inescapable. As we read in the parable today, as we are taught that it is God alone who is establishing His kingdom by bringing sinners to faith by His power, as the Spirit works grace in the sinner's soul by faith. Now, I'm pretty confident if I ask anyone here today, you know, how many of you in having these discussions have ever taken someone to the parable of the seed growing to demonstrate the sovereignty of God and salvation? And I'm sure the answer would be zero, a big, a big goose egg. And I know that because I've never done it either. But it's through the, the study of this text and through the close examination of it that I actually think that this is a, a good passage that we can take people to to support the sovereignty of God by looking at what the nature of the kingdom of God is. And so that's what we're going to do today, brothers and sisters. We're going to look at what is the nature of the kingdom. What does this text tell us about the nature of the kingdom? And what does that then tell us about God's sovereignty over it? And so we're going to do so in three headings. We're going to see that what God is doing in the building up of His kingdom is first unobservable. That what God is doing in the building up of His kingdom is unobservable. Second, what he is doing is self-moving. It is self-moving. And then lastly, we will see that it is harvest-producing. Harvest-producing. Now, what do I mean when I say that what God is doing in building up his kingdom is unobservable? Well, we have to look at verses 26 and 27 for our answer. So please look with me there. Jesus says the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. It is these four words at the end here that tell us something, don't they, brothers and sisters? He knows not how. See, in this parable... Jesus is comparing the, the growing of the kingdom with that of the work of the 
farmer and the, and the growing of the crop in his garden. Right? The, the farmer scatters the seed. And he does his work day after day. He wakes up and he goes to bed. And eventually the seed produces crop. And yet he doesn't know how. Other than the fact that it does. And I think we all can understand what Jesus is conveying here. Because every day we go out into the world and we see things. And we see them working. But we don't necessarily know how. Right? Take for example... My watch, right? I put this watch on in the morning and I trust that it's working, that it's telling me the time, that it's doing what it's supposed to do. But unless you've ever ripped a, a, apart a watch and you've, you've looked behind it and you've, you've seen what's going on inside, you don't know what's taking place. Right? You, you know that there are tiny pieces that are working. You know that there's a battery there. But you don't understand how it all is working and comes coming together. You know, I, I looked at my watch. I know that my watch is doing what a watch does, even if I don't know how. And this is the same as the farmer who scatters the seed and sees his, cro- his crop sprout, even after he just wakes up from slumber, even if he doesn't know what's taking place underneath the surface of the earth. And remember, these are first century farmers Jesus is talking about. They don't have development and technology like we have today. And so Jesus is saying to His disciples that the same holds true for the Kingdom of God. The Kingdom of God grows, but we don't know how because we do not see it. Because it grows supernaturally and sovereignly by God. But that growth is a mystery. It does not take place in plain sight, but it takes place out of sight. This is what Jesus tells the Pharisees in Luke chapter 17. In Luke 17, verse 20, Jesus says this, Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, He answered them this, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, there it is. For behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is here. But it's a spiritual reality, not a physical one. It isn't something that you can see outwardly, because it's something that takes place inwardly. Let me ask, when has anyone here ever seen grace being operated on the soul of an individual? I don't mean the effects of grace on a converted sinner, but actually and visibly seeing the heart of someone transformed by grace. No one has. We all know what regeneration is because Scripture tells us, right? It's the removal of that heart of stone and it's a a putting in of that heart of flesh. But let me ask you, if a sinner dies apart from Christ and they open up his chest, are you going to find a stone there? No. It's something that cannot be seen. It's God working grace within us. And this is how we know, brothers and sisters, that the growth of the kingdom doesn't depend on us, but solely depends on God. 
He is sovereign over it. This is exactly what Paul tells Titus in Titus chapter 3, verse 5. If you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to Titus chapter 3, verse 5. Because there's a broader point I want to make here as well. Titus chapter 3, verse 5. We read this. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Christ Jesus our Savior. See, this is the mystery though. The farmer can scatter his seed and he can do all the right things, but he doesn't know why some seed sprouts up and produces crop and why others don't. And the same is true for the kingdom of God. The minister can proclaim the same word to the whole crowd and he doesn't know, humanly speaking, why it grabs hold of the hearts of some and not others. He's saying the same words to to everyone. Everyone receives the same message. The answer, brothers and sisters, is God. He saved. It was His mercy. He chose to pour out His grace on some through Christ Jesus by the washing of regeneration and renewal. But you can't see that. And Paul makes it clear in this passage in Titus. Right? It isn't because of any works done by us in righteousness. It is all an act of the triune God. And this is the point I want you to see. Do you see the triune God here at work in our salvation? In this text, look down at it once more. Paul says, He saved us. That is the Father. The Father saved them. They are renewed by who? The Spirit. And this only happens through whom? Christ Jesus. That is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Paul is saying, active in our salvation. And how this should serve to humble us in every way. That God chose us to make us like His Son. This is something that God did by His Spirit. And so just as the farmer cannot produce crop apart from God, the minister cannot bring anyone into the kingdom of God apart from God in His choosing to make those people after the image of His Son. God is sovereign over all things. We see that both creation in the farmer's work and redemption in what He has called the ministers to proclaim. And yet God uses means In both circumstances, doesn't He? He uses the farmer to to scatter the seed in order to grow the crop that he might have food to eat, that he might be able to maintain his life and to make a living. And likewise, in the preaching of the Gospel, God uses means. He uses ministers to proclaim the Word in order to advance and to grow the kingdom. And I think Jesus, likewise, uses this comparison of of the farmer and the minister Because these are also two vocations that are oftentimes looked down upon, aren't they? 
They are esteemed very high by society. Right? People look at the farmer and say, that doesn't take much work. Any, anyone with a brain can, can do that work. They're kind of low on the, on the totem pole of society. And in many quarters of the world, this isn't the same with, with ministers. They say, well, they're not that bright. You know, they, they believe in this, this ancient book that is divinely inspired by God and all they do is get up on Sunday morning and give the people a little message to make them happy. Right? Both lowly professions. Both professions not highly esteemed. But no matter how little people may think of the work, think about the great work that God does through these means. Right? It is through the farmer that He feeds hundreds, thousands, if not millions, depending on the size of the farm. Right? This is food that we need to survive. And likewise with the minister. God gives him the, 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 the gifts and the means to proclaim the Word to spiritually feed God's people and to bring them into the kingdom of God. But not only do we see that the seed grows and produces crops and the farmer doesn't know how because it's unobservable, we also see and are told that the seed grows independent of the farmer. The seed grows independent of the farmer. And this takes us to our second point this morning. Self-moving. Here in verse 28, Jesus says this, that the earth produces itself first by the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. He's saying when the, it's when the farmer sleeps that the earth spontaneously produces fruit. Jesus, in comparing this to the kingdom of God, is saying that ultimately, no matter how many people we proclaim the word to, we cannot cause growth in anyone. It is solely the work of the Spirit who accompanies the word, who applies the word to the heart of whomever the Spirit wills. And we see this in a text like John chapter 3, verse 8 where Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. And you remember He tells them, no one can enter the kingdom of heaven unless they first be born again. And then in verse 8, Jesus says this, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. You see what Jesus is saying in comparing the wind to the Holy Spirit is that the wind doesn't first consult with you and I on where it ought to blow, does it? We know that firsthand. We've all had picnics or parties outside and you, you get the table all decorated and what happens? A big gush of wind comes and everything comes flying off, right? The wind doesn't consult with us. The wind does what the wind wants to do and you cannot control it. It is self moving and same is the case with the holy spirit the spirit does what the spirit wants to do it consults with no man the power lies with him to do as he wills and such likewise is the case we are being told in our text today with the seed right the power is in the seed to germinate the soil it produces itself jesus says and interestingly enough, 
This same phrase by itself is used elsewhere and it, it really tells us what Jesus is trying to say. And so I, I ask you to please turn with me to, to Acts chapter 12. Turn with me to Acts chapter 12. We'll start in verse 10. Acts chapter 12. Well, excuse me. Let's, we'll back up. We'll start in verse, uh, verse 6. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly! And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what, he, that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along the street and immediately the angel left him. This is what we're told, brothers and sisters. Right? Peter's in prison. He's awakened. The chain's broken. He's told to leave. He walks by one guard. Walks by a second guard. Comes upon an iron gate. And we read in verse 10, it opened for them of its own accord or by itself. And they went out. Right? So what Jesus is saying in the parable is that it does it by itself. The seed germinates the soil by itself apart from the help and aid of man. Jesus is saying in our parable that the Word accompanied by the Spirit stops and performs its operations on whomever He wills by Himself. So that we see the scatterer of the seed is nothing. The minister is nothing. The hearer is nothing. And how does that cause us to be humble. It is pride that says we had something to do with our own salvation. But we ought to abase ourselves before God recognizing that we are nothing and God is everything in our salvation. This is why the, the best sermon a minister can preach can produce absolutely zero fruit. And yet why his very worst sermon he ever felt he preached can produce the most. Or why the smartest person in the pew doesn't receive the Word, but the, the smallest child in the pew does. It's because the Holy Spirit rests on whom He chooses and on whom He desires. But this also demonstrates to us, brothers and sisters, why the synergists are wrong. Right? Why... It's not man cooperating with God in our salvation. Right? We see in this parable that salvation is monergistic. It is God alone. 
We cannot cause life in ourselves. We cannot convert ourselves or others. It is God who converts the sinners apart from us. It is actually God who converts the sinner in spite of us. In our parable, the earth works by itself. It works spontaneously. It works automatically. And so we are to understand in this parable the earth as the earth wherein the seed has already been embedded. And that seed then knows what to do because it's being moved by the Holy Spirit. And still, you can't see the Holy Spirit working upon the heart of an individual. You don't know who the Spirit is working upon quietly as He is operating upon their heart. For some, there is a radical change, isn't there? Where He works hard and fast. Where one day they are loving their sin living a life of sin, and the next day they are radically changed. And for others, the Holy Spirit works quietly and softly and gently. But whichever category you have fallen into there, one thing is true, that no matter which one you are, there are always to be sure evidences of the Spirit working in your heart. Right? Jesus says in verse 28, that from the seed, the earth produces first a blade, then an ear, then a full grain in the ear. You see, spiritual life, brothers and sisters, is something that is evident, that grows, but that is also gradual. Jesus is saying that the spiritual life is something that is gradual, that we are constantly growing up into it. And this is why we would be wise than to show charity to our brothers and our sisters. This is why we would be wise to show charity to our brothers and our sisters. There are some of us who are stronger in the faith and some of us who are weaker in the faith, but we all belong to the same faith. We are just in a different stage in the process. Right? Just as the, the plant goes through a cycle, so too does the Christian. Maybe some of you were converted at an older age. And so although you are older than some, you are still a babe in Christ. And yet that doesn't mean that God isn't working and richly blessing those people. You see, so often we make the mistake of judging based on appearance. But that would be the same mistake that Samuel made in 1 Samuel chapter 16. If you remember, the Lord sends Samuel out to find the next king of Israel. And he, he tells him to go to the house of Jesse, where Jesse has many sons there. And one of the sons that Samuel sees is Iliad. And he says, surely this man must be the Lord's anointed. You can imagine, Iliad was probably a, a big, strong, chiseled, mighty, warrior-looking fellow, right? But what does the Lord respond in verse 7 of chapter 16? Do not look on his appearance or on his height or his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. You see, God sovereignly chose David and not Iliad. And so this ought to be a caution and a warning to us not to judge our brethren in whatever stage of the Christian life they are in and think negatively about them. Because no matter who it is, 
They all belong to God. He is their Master and they are His servants. No matter who it is or what stage they are in the Christian life, we all belong to the Kingdom of God. But this is accomplished by the Spirit and through His Word. Again, we see this just like in the parable of the sower. Our parable today highlights the significance of the seed which represents the Word of God. Right? What does Paul say again in Romans 1.16? For I am not ashamed of the Gospel for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. What Paul is saying there is that it is through the Gospel that God exerts His power. It is through the Gospel that God exerts His power. And it's through the Gospel that the Holy Spirit guides and directs it where it should go. It was Stephen Charnock who says that the Word of God is the chariot wherein the Spirit rides. The Gospel is the chariot upon which the Spirit rides. We might think of it like this. The Gospel is the vehicle used by God for the Holy Spirit to do His work in our hearts. And it is through the Word heard here every Lord's Day that you can be sure that the Holy Spirit is riding upon it, implanting it into your hearts, growing you degree by degree in grace until you are ripe for the harvest. And because it is God doing the work, because it is God who's causing the growth, because it is God the Holy Spirit implanting into your heart, you can be certain that there will be a harvest. And this takes us to point number three. Harvest producing. For those within whom the kingdom resides, God makes certain that you will be ripe and harvested at His appointed time. Look with me at verse 29, please. Jesus says this, But when the grain is ripe, at once He puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. This idea of sickles and a ripe harvest is not something exclusive to our text here. But actually we see this in a, a few different places in Scripture. One such place is in Revelation. And I would like you to please turn with me there so we might look at this together. It is Revelation chapter 14. And we'll look at verses 14 to 16. Revelation chapter 14, verses 14 to 16. So John tells us that he has this vision and he says this, Then I looked, and behold, a a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like the Son of Man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap. For the hour to reap has come. For the harvest on the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth and the earth was reaped. You see, this idea of taking the sickle and reaping the harvest very much has to do with judgment and the return of Christ. And so what Jesus is communicating to His disciples in this parable 
is that the harvest is coming. Judgment is drawing near, but that it will not occur until the time is right and the harvest is ripe. You see, brothers and sisters, it is actually through the proclamation of the gospel and the work of the Spirit through this interadvental period, right through the first coming of Christ and His second coming, it is through the work of the Spirit and the Word that God is pledging to us something. God is making a pledge to us. He's saying, you can be certain that I will return and that at that time the kingdom of God will fully be revealed. Right? Paul tells us this in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. He says, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. You see what Paul's saying? You heard, you received the gospel, you received them the, the, and were sealed with the Spirit, which is our guarantee then that Christ is returning and that you have possession of that inheritance. And what comfort the saints should take from that. What comfort we should receive. What encouragement we ought to draw. That no one and nothing can destroy the kingdom of God. God's kingdom is more powerful than any earthly kingdom. All the earthly kingdoms combined. He will never remove His people from this world until we are ripe for the collect. Right? This is why God sent the, the Word into the world. This is why He sent His seed and why He causes us to grow. Because there's going to come a time when He returns to collect what is His. You see, we are that field of crops that were purchased by the blood of Christ. We are His possession. We are the first fruits of Him. And so He will not allow His people to go back but rather He guards us by His power through faith until the last day. But one other thing that this passage reveals to us, brothers and sisters, if we are understanding it correctly, is that there is no earthly millennial kingdom. Now is the millennial kingdom. We see this taught in the parable. We see in verse 26, that the kingdom begins with Christ's coming and the proclamation of the gospel. In verse 29, we have the judgment when Christ returns. And in between, in verses 27 and 28, what do we have? The word being proclaimed, sinners being converted, and being grown up in the faith until the judgment. There is no room here for an earthly millennial kingdom reign. The parable doesn't give it to us. There's no room given to us. There's no way around it in the parable. At the judgment, we are told in many places in Scripture, what will happen? That is when He will decipher and bring apart the wheat from the tares. That is where He will separate the sheep from the goats. And what happens? The sheep go into eternal life and the goats into eternal destruction. Right? So our Lord is not telling anyone to look forward to some earthly kingdom. But what He's telling us is to look forward to that heavenly city whose founder and builder is God. That is what we are to be keeping our eyes on. 
for Christ's return where He will collect His harvest. And yet, for those who die before that final judgment, you can rest assured that there are no mistakes. There are no accidents. There is no such thing as chance. When you die, it will be because you are ripe for the collecting. You will die because the sovereign God has decreed it and appointed it and you will die at no other. So there is no reason to fret or worry or question why someone has died when they did. God doesn't make mistakes. And Peter encourages us until that day comes, until our final breath is taken, or until Christ returns in judgment, Peter encourages us to, to press on here. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, when he says this, You have been born again, not of a perishable seed, but of imperishable seed, through the living and the abiding Word of God. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the Word of God remains forever. And then he says this, and this word was a good news preached to you. You see, God brought us into His kingdom, causing us sovereignly to be born again. But He keeps us in His kingdom through the living and abiding word until we are ready for the harvest. And we can be sure that when Christ returns, it will be for His glory. That when He returns to take for Himself His bride, it will be for His glory. And so as long as we live on this earth, brothers and sisters, let it be for His glory. As we draw to a close then, I hope that at least some of you would feel more comfortable in taking someone to the the parable of the seed growing to demonstrate and to provide some evidence for the sovereignty of God and salvation. Because remember, you don't have to be scared. Parables are given to teach us truth. And the truth that this parable teaches us is that God sovereignly rules over His kingdom. He causes it to grow. And He will come back to collect His harvest. Please, brothers and sisters, bow your heads with me in prayer. Oh, Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your promises. We thank You that You are all-powerful and all-knowing and unchanging. And we can rest in the sure promises of God in the Gospel that those who have repented and believed in Christ Jesus, You have implanted Your Holy Spirit within them and that You could grow them and keep them until the day of harvest. Father, we pray that You would strengthen our faith, that You would strengthen our belief in this truth, and that we would remain in the faith, that we would remain uh, pure, and that we would remain in holiness until You return. And yet, Father, we cannot do that apart from Your Spirit, and so we pray for the Spirit's help in all those things, so that we might live to the glory and the honor and the praise of God. And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.